Stay with us following Crosswalk for this week's Cross Culture Q&A. Growing in God's Word and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. You've fallen victim to, to comfort and, and, and complacency and apathy. Wake up. In sports, one of the hardest things there is to achieve is winning back-to-back titles. One of the primary reasons it's so difficult to repeat a championship is because a team, after reaching a certain level of success, can become complacent. If a team isn't careful, the success they enjoyed from winning a championship can often cause them to settle in and lose their edge. Is it possible for that to happen to a church? Is this it so that you could just have your little Sunday come to meeting thing? So you could all go down there and shake a few hands and sing a few songs? And is this just a Sunday ritual in your life or is this actually your life? I'm Rick Freeman. Welcome to Crosswalk. This week, we continue our series entitled The Revelation. We've been working our way through the opening chapters of the book of Revelation, looking at the seven letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Well, today we're introduced to the church at Sardis. It was a church that had experienced a great amount of success in its earlier days. As a result, the church had a great reputation. But as Pastor Clay shows us today, Jesus wants more than for his church to have a good reputation. He wants results. And that often means getting out of the comfort zone. America is full of churches with their stained glass windows and their steeples with their crosses on top and inside they're cold and lifeless and dead. I'm telling you, I've preached in a hundred of them. We're glad you've joined us for this week's Crosswalk. Grandkids are a great source of material uh, if, if, you, uh, if you preach. I mean, they give you some, some great stuff. So we've got the kids this, this weekend, uh, Wyatt and Dakota. And, uh, and I was, yesterday morning, I was doing some touch-up painting. Some walls have got nicked up and things like that. So I was doing some touch-up painting. Now, if, some of you don't know me. Some of you do know me. If you, if you do know me or if you know me very long, you, you may know that I have a reputation for being, how should I put it? Um, mechanically challenged. Um, I, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, some, most, if, you do, if you know me, you know that if things break in our house or something, whatever, needs a nail or something, Cindy is, is the one that usually fixes it and, and does that kind of stuff. It's just, I, I don't know. It's, I just, I, it's a mystery to me. <laughs> uh, me with the tool in my hand is, just doesn't, and a power tool, let's not even go there. You know, power tool. Um, so anyway, I got this little little roller. It's just a little pan out, and this little roller, and I'm rolling different places. And it, and uh, Wyatt had gotten up, and he at some point came up, either came up or came downstairs or whatever. And I hadn't even noticed that he had come over, and he was watching me. You know, I'm touching up here and there, touching up here and there. And <clears throat> I don't know how long he's watching me, but suddenly, totally unsolicited, he says, "That too hard for you, Poppy." That too hard. That too hard for you, Poppy. And I'm like, has Nani? Has Nani said something? Did Nani put you up to this or something? Because I'm. He said, "Where does that come from?" That too hard. And and when Wyatt starts saying something, he just keeps saying it over and over and over. That too hard. That too hard for you, Poppy. That too hard for you. I'm I'm going off to different. He's still following me. That too hard for you, Poppy. (laughs) He's got this new thing. He's got this new thing he does. That 
if he's doing something that he's, he's two and a half, he'll, he'll be three in June. If he's doing this thing that he's not supposed to be doing, and, the, and, and they know, right? They know what they are and are not supposed to be doing, at least to some degree. If he's, got, if he's doing something that he knows he's not supposed to be doing, and you are coming into the room, you're coming near him, or you're coming, and, and he, he knows that you're about to catch him doing whatever it is he's not supposed to be doing. He does this preemptive strike now. He'll, 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 if he sees you, he'll run towards you. He'll come up and he'll go, shh, 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 shh. <laughs> In other words, I don't want to hear what you're about to say. I know you're about to get on to me because I'm not supposed to be doing this or I'm not supposed to be into that. And so, you know, you'll start, because he knows you're going you're to get on to him. You're going to say so. You're going to say he needs to be correct. Shh, shh. We are now... As of today, last, uh, last Sunday, last day of February, we are now two months into this study called the Revelation. Two months into looking at these seven letters that Jesus wrote to these seven churches in Asia Minor. And we've only gotten through four of them. Today we come to number five. And I'm wondering if at this point any of us are to the point where we're, we're ready to go, shh, shh. Because I don't know about you, but this stuff is convicting to me. I mean, this stuff is really convicting to me. Now, I, I know Jesus has got some good things to say about his churches that he writes to. And remember, keep this in mind. He's writing to seven. I've said this over and over again. He's writing to seven specific, actual churches. But there's application throughout the church age to all of the churches right on down to today. And I know Jesus has some good things to say about his his churches. But there is a lot of stuff that Jesus is not pleased with in his church. In Ephesus, it was their, their loss of, of, of that passion, that, that love, that excitement that they had when they initially came to know him as Lord and Savior. And, and they lost, they left that first love is the way Jesus uh, puts it. And so he, he, he has to deal with them about that in, in chapter 2. Really just chapter 2 and, and chapter 3 is, is where he where he gets into it. In, in Smyrna, it was their fear. In Pergamum and Thyatira, it's their theology. And now we come to Sardis. Sardis is important. All of them are important. But Sardis is important because after really studying this, uh, I've come to the conclusion, and, you know, not everyone may not agree on this, and it may not be that big a deal, but I, I, looking at Sardis, I've come to the conclusion that Sardis, probably more than any of the other churches, resembles the church in America today. All of them, you can find things in all of them, and we have so far, and we will in, in, in Philadelphia and Laodicea when we get to those churches as well. But Sardis, to me, when I, when I see Sardis, when I understand the difficulty, the problems that they were having, I, I was thinking, man, that's, that's the church in America today. Revelation chapter 3, verse 1, is where we are this morning. I encourage you to bring a Bible with you if you have one. Uh, if you don't have one with you, the text is up on the screen as well. To the angel of the church in Sardis... Right. He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it. And repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, 
And you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus writes to Sardis. What's going on in Sardis? Well, Sardis is about, uh, oh, I think about 50 miles east of Ephesus, the first city we started with, and about 35 miles kind of southeast of Thyatira, the city we dealt with last week. It was a successful city. It was a, it was a wealthy city. It lay at the crossroads of five intersecting roads. And so, as you could imagine, any good business, operative word is location, location, location. Intersection of five main roads, and so Sardis was a center for commerce. The Roman historian Pliny also says that that Sardis and and the, the, the nation that it had been the capital of at one time, Lydia, was the place where the dyeing of wool was invented. And so it also became a manufacturing center as well. It was wealthy. It was well off. They were well to do. Uh, A.T. Robertson uh, says this about the city of Sardis. He says, it was a city of softness and luxury, of apathy and immorality. Now, the immorality shouldn't surprise us, right? Every city that we have looked at so far in this study in the book of Revelation, every city had its share of immorality. Every city had its, had its vices, had its, had its sexual immorality and its drunkenness and its greed and, and, and pretty much anything else that you can think of. That, that fact really shouldn't surprise us, that there was, there was immorality going on. It was just probably going on a little more so in Sardis because they had more to work with. They had more money. They had more wealth. They had more prosperity. And Jesus uh, introduces himself Uh, to the church in Sardis as he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven seven stars. In other places, he has them in his hand, but he just says, I have the seven stars, seven spirits. We went over this in the first week or two, but just to review, because he he brings it up as part of his his introduction of himself to them, the uh, seven spirits uh, is simply a reference to the Holy Spirit that's... uh, that's pretty much universally accepted by, by conservative scholarship. Uh, seven represents completion. It represents fullness. And it's simply Jesus' way of, of saying that, that this is the Holy Spirit. This is the one who is full and has everything that you need, uh, that, that he is the, the all-powerful one. It's a reference to the Holy Spirit. The seven stars most likely is a reference to the seven pastors of the seven churches. So, the Holy Spirit who's over the church... The seven pastors who oversee the, the, the work and the ministry of the church. Once again, here it is. Once again, we find Jesus establishing his authority in the church. Once again, we find Jesus saying, I am the man. I'm the one who has authority here. Well, why does Jesus keep thinking he has to establish his authority in the church? Why do you have to keep telling us over and over again about his authority in the church? I don't know. You tell me. Why do you think Jesus has to keep reminding us of his authority? 
Maybe because it's easier to say Jesus is Lord than to live Jesus is Lord. And so he introduces himself in this way. He is the, he is the one. He says, I know your deeds. But then what he says is, their deeds. It was an interesting thing about Sardis, by the way. Sardis, and as we'll see when we get there in a couple of weeks, uh, Laodicea are the only two churches that he, did, he didn't really have anything to commend them for. I mean, he can't really find anything good to say about them. He says, I, I know your deeds, but what he says their deeds are is you've got a name. In other words, they had a reputation. Sardis had a reputation. Now, whether it was in the surrounding cities, whether it was in the community, whether, where it was, I don't know, but, but, but Sardis had developed a reputation. And that reputation was that, it was that it was strong, that it was vibrant, that it was healthy, that it was active, that it was, you know, kingdom-focused. And I mean, that was his reputation. And Jesus clarifies real quickly where they are. He says, but you are dead. Oh, I, I know what everybody says about you. But you're dead. Listen, can I tell you something? Man, I, I know about this reputation stuff. Because in, in every, I would say in every country that I have traveled to to do some type of mission work, and, and those of you that have done some traveling and some mission work can probably verify this, but I would say in every country that I have traveled to, to to do mission work, in conversation with the believers in that nation, they have this idea that the church in America is... It's it. The church in America, buddy, for some reason they have this idea that the church in America is just active and powerful and vibrant and impacting its community and making this world-changing difference. Somehow they've gotten this idea that every professing uh, Christian in America knows their Bible frontwards and backwards. They've got this, this idea that every single church in America is packed to the gills every Sunday with people coming in hungry for the Word of God and eager to worship the living God. Somehow they've gotten this idea that, that, that every believer a professing believer in the church in America is, is, is humble and, and, and seeking to, to be engaged and involved and working and, and all this kind of stuff. I'm, I'm telling you, I, I hear this everywhere. Oh, if only we could be more like the church in America. I hear that all the time. And sadly, I have to say, nah, it's, it's really not that way. It's really not like that. The church in Sardis had built a name for themselves. They, they had done well. They had prospered. And, and did you notice there, there's no mention of, of uh, theological pollution in this? There's, there's, no, there's no mention like in the previous two churches where they had theological problems that were leading to immoral problems. There's none of that. That's not mentioned. They had built this name for themselves, and I have no doubt that they had done kingdom good at some point, and they were, and they were active. I'm sure that they were, they were doing all those things. But do you also notice that there's no mention, and apparently it wasn't pushed, the whole idea of cult, of, uh, of emperor, the emperor cult. Remember, we've talked about that almost every week. That apparently the government in Sardis wasn't pushing the fact that, that if you were going to be a good Roman citizen, you had to worship the emperor. There's no mention of that here either. There's no mention of persecution going on. And the church in Sardis, even though they didn't face persecution, let me put it this way, even though they didn't face persecution, they had run up against probably what I would say was the most dangerous weapon that the enemy could possibly present to them, or to us, by the way. The most dangerous, the most, most powerful weapon that, that Sardis faced and that you and I face, comfort. Comfort. The church in Sardis had become comfortable because life was good in Sardis. Sardis. 
They were prospering. Business was good. It was kind of apparently, uh, you know, we're not going to, the whole Jesus thing, okay, we're, they're, they're doing their thing. We're, we're not going to mess with them. We're not, we're not going to persecute them. And the church had come to this place where they're, they're just settled in and they're just kind of comfortable and they're just doing their thing and they're probably meeting weekly and, and they're probably praising the Lord. But, and they've got this reputation for being this, this great church and, and Jesus has a word for them. Wake up! Did they wake you up? <laughs> I'll teach you to fall asleep, man. No, she wasn't. Wake up! Wake up, church! You've fallen victim to to comfort and, and, and complacency and apathy. Wake up. Which, by the way, is the BP squared this week. It's the big picture biblical principle, and it looks like this. Wake up, shake off, put on. Wake up, shake off, put on. Wake up from your complacency. Shake off your apathy and put on your identity. Jesus says to the church in Sardis, and he says to me, and listen, can, let, let me say this. Let me interrupt myself and say this. That was weird. Let me say this. Remember this. All, when, when we're talking about the churches, you always have to think dualistically. You always have to think corporately, that he's talking corporately, and he is. He's talking to the entire church body. But you also have to think personally, because he's talking to me. He's talking to you. When he says, wake up, he's saying, church at Sardis, wake up. When he says, wake up, he's saying, he's saying church at Cross Culture, wake up. But he's also saying, Clay, wake up. Wake up from your complacency. You, you've, just, you've just fallen into this trap of just, of just getting along and, and, and being along. Shake off the apathy. Does, does anybody know what that feels like? To just become apathetic about, oh, I just, oh, it's all right, I'll just... And put on your identity. Put on who you're created to be in Christ Jesus. Wake up. Shake off. Put on. That's the charge to the church in Sardis. I, I told this story not long ago. Some of you heard me tell this story, but, but I'm going to bring it up again because it, it just, I think, epitomizes what we're talking about here. I said at the beginning that I believe the church in Sardis mirrors the church in America maybe more than any of the other churches. When, when, I, when I came to this, this understanding of what Jesus was saying to the church in Sardis and they'd become so comfortable with where they were, I, I got to think, you know what? The church in America looks just like that. America is full of churches just like that. It's full of churches with their, with their stained glass windows and their, and their steeples with their crosses on top and their talk of, of glory days of past revivals and events that occurred, and inside they're cold and lifeless and dead. I'm telling you, I've preached in a hundred of them. I was at this church in, in southern Virginia a few years ago when I was in seminary, and uh, they, they were without a pastor, and they asked me to come and, and preach, uh, do pulpit supply for them, and I did. And I, I went up there, and uh, after the service, went to lunch with the pulpit search committee. They wanted to ask me a few questions, and um, in, the, in the course of that, that questioning, uh, the committee members, one of the committee members, the chairman, somebody brought up uh, the fact that they said, I guess you noticed that we didn't have any black people in our uh, service today. And, um, and then they added this caveat. They said, it's, they said, they said, it's not that we have anything against them. <laughs> It's just that we have our church and they have their church. Now, when I press them on this, on this idea, 
when I pressed them and said, now, when you, if your new pastor comes in and, and uh, his first day on the job, he, he, he goes, uh, knocks on a door or he goes somewhere and, and he begins, strikes up a conversation with someone and he leads that person to relationship with Jesus. And let's say that person happens to be of a, of a particular persuasion or, or, or color that, that's not, not yours. And he leads that person to that relationship with Jesus and he tells him, all right, now the first thing you need to do now, my brother, my sister, and Jesus, you've got to find yourself a good Bible-believing church. You've got to get plugged in and you've got to begin to grow. But, oh, by the way, sorry, you can't come to my church. I said, is that how that's going to work? And they said, well, the bottom line is this. There are people who would leave our church if a black person came in and we're just not willing to split our church. Now, do you, did you hear what they said? Do, do you understand what they're saying? We're comfortable. We like where we are. We like our position in the community. We like what's, what's happening right now. We don't want to rock the boat. We don't want to, we don't want to cause any waves. We, we're just comfortable. You know what really scares me? You don't have to have stained glass windows in a steeple to be cold and apathetic and complacent. Churches that meet in schools can become complacent. Churches that meet in houses or anywhere else for that matter can become cold and complacent and apathetic. And Jesus says, wake up! And you, you, you can almost hear the pleading in his voice when he says this. Now, I know he has the authority to command us. He's established that. And it is a command, by the way, in the Greek text. It is a command. But, but I think it's a command that's coming from this deep love and desire to see you actually succeed at this thing that we call following Jesus. And so he says, he says, wake up and strengthen the things that remain which are about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you've received and heard and keep it and repent. What Jesus is saying, listen, you're not done, church. Oh, you're living off your past glory days and, and you're talking about the things that used to be and you're, and you're going along and nobody's giving you any trouble. And he says, you're not done yet. There's so much more work to do. There's so much more I want to accomplish through you. There's so much more that I could do in you, but you've got to wake up. Wake up. I, I can hear him in, in, my, in my mind. In my mind, I, I can hear him saying, is this, is this what I died for? Is this it so that, so that you could just have your little Sunday come to meeting thing? So you could all go down there and shake a few hands and sing a few songs. And Is this just a Sunday ritual in your life or is this actually your life? Is it possible that, that, that you could recognize in your life that, that there's so much more in following me if you would just wake up from your complacency? from your comfort. Well, <laughs> I might well start preaching here in a minute, so I'd best just go on. I'm going to run out of time here, and, uh, and there's a lot to, ta- a lot to say. Um, uh, verse 4, uh, he mentions, but you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. Uh, they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes, uh, there in verse 5, he who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. Let, let me just mention the, the white uh, garments. Oh, wait, I, I do need to back up. Did I, cause I, I've always got this stuff that I want y'all to, to put down. Um, did I mention about the, that he said he was coming as a thief? Um, I, I think I did give, give you that for a blank. Uh, come like a thief. All, all it simply means is he's going to come unannounced. Um, he, he's not giving you warning, right? Because you clean your act up then, right? Oh, he's going to be here in 15 minutes. 
By the way, it could be a reference to his return, but more than likely, it's just a reference to his judgment. When I was, when I was a kid, uh, I grew up on a farm, on a dairy, and my dad, I had two other brothers, uh, three sons, my, my dad would put us out in the field uh, to, to hoe out the uh, thistles, weeds that grew up in the field, and uh, uh, he would drop us off and hand us a hoe. Didn't fit my hand very well back then either. He'd drop us off and he said, all right, now get started. And we'd have to spread out across the field. He said, get started and I'll be back later to check on your progress. We start out at it pretty good, but, you know, enough time passes. You start slacking off, taking a few more breaks, goofing off, throwing cow patties at each other, dry ones, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, and, uh, but, but I'll tell you something, buddy, but I'll tell you something. Is that daddy's truck coming? Is that daddy's truck over there? Oh, buddy, we, where's that hoe? Give me that thing. We are, what? Because Jesus says, I'm coming. If, you're not, if you don't deal with this, if you don't repent, if you don't, if you don't get out of that apathy that you're in, then I'll come and I'll deal with you. And, and you won't know I'm coming. I'm just going to show up. Uh, the white garments, uh, I believe they're a reference to our works of righteousness. Now, listen to what I say. I believe they're a reference to our works of righteousness, not our works for righteousness. And there's different opinions about the interpretation of these white garments, by the way. But I believe what he's referring to, because remember this, no one is cleansed. No one is white except by the blood of Jesus Christ, which cleanses us from our sin, from all iniquity. His blood shed on the Calvary's cross makes us righteous in God's sight. It puts us adopted into his family. We're in right standing. But having come into that right relationship with him, the things then that we do as a result of that, the kingdom work that we do, which is what he seems to be talking to all these churches about, that those are our, our works as a result of what God has done in us that bring glory to him. And they, spiritually speaking, are, are these, these garments and then comes, and I've got to, I've got to hurry here because I know I want to do this and close. And then comes this, this statement that I've already had somebody ask me about this morning. Some of you already, when you read it, said, whoa, that, that little statement right there where he says um, in verse 5, He who comes with us be, overcomes with us be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. Uh-oh, what does that mean? All right. Um, let me start with what it doesn't mean because, quite honestly, that's the most important thing. What's most important is that you understand what it doesn't mean. What it doesn't mean is that a person who is genuinely in a relationship with God, genuinely saved, genuinely born again, that person cannot lose their, that relationship with God. They cannot lose their salvation. That the text can't mean that a person can lose their salvation. I admit that's what, it, that's what it sounds like when you read it. It can't mean that. Let me explain to you why it can't mean that. It can't mean that because, in my estimation, all of the rest of Scripture, and remember, always context, and, and one of the contexts that we, that we look at when interpreting Scripture is the overall biblical context and all the rest of Scripture, in my opinion, is crystal clear that a person who is genuinely in a relationship with Jesus. Now, you can argue about whether that person is genuinely in a relationship or not. But a person who is genuinely adopted into the family of God, they cannot lose. Scripture is just too clear about that. And I have a pretty extensive list that, I, that I'm going to go through because this is an important subject. I want you to understand this. Because there are, there are churches that believe that a person who can be saved can also be unsaved. Um, 
beginning in John chapter 5. You can just write these verses down if you want, but listen to what they say. Truly, truly, I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has, present continual tense, has eternal life. By the way, we could even talk about that. If you can lose eternal life, was it eternal to begin with? So why even use the phrase eternal life if I could have, then it was, never mind. Has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. All right, uh, John chapter 10, verse 28. And I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Um, Romans chapter 8. In everything, we have won more than a victory because of Christ who loves us. I'm sure that nothing can separate us from God's love. Not life or death, not angels or spirits, not the present or the future, and not powers above or powers below. Nothing in all creation can separate us from God's love for us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I like that verse. Those verses. 1 Corinthians, he will keep you strong to the end. Notice who's keeping who? It's not you keeping, it's God keeping. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Now, it is God who makes both us and you stand firm. Notice that word, in Christ. That God's the one that does this. He anointed us, set a seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit. I'm sorry, what is that word? What? Come on, say it again. Guaranteeing what is to come. Ephesians chapter 1. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a what? A seal. The promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit. There's that word again. Guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory because he's the one that does the saving. It's not about you and what you've done. Ephesians 2. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works. Your works never had anything to do with it in the first place. So that no one can boast, for we are God's workmanship. He's the one that did it. He's the one that brought this salvation into my life. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You understand? It's not about my works saving me. It's about being saved by God's work that then allows me to live my life for him. Philippians 1.6, I love this verse. And I'm certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it's finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. He's not, he's not walking away from, from this masterpiece he's creating in you. Hebrews 7.25, therefore he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And then I think I have one more First uh, Peter chapter 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Somebody say amen. Amen. That's... That's absolutely right. Over and over and over and over again, there is, this, there is this clear statement. I've saved you. I've done this work. I keep you. I protect you. So, real quickly, 
the text can't mean that a person who was saved gets unsaved, all right? Now, real quickly, just a couple of ideas of what it could mean. One idea that some people throw out that what it could mean is that Jesus is not really saying that anybody's name is going to be erased from the book of life. And he, and he doesn't really say that anybody's name is going to be erased from the book of life. He's simply saying that if you're mine, you don't have to worry about it. If you're mine, it's not like I'm going to erase your name from the book of life or anything. It's not, you, you don't have to worry about it you're, if you're mine. Because certainly, there, no doubt, there were professors, there were pretenders, so to speak. There were those who, who, who said they were part of Christ, but they weren't. And Christ is saying, if, if, he's really, if you're really part of mine, you don't, you don't have to worry about that. It was possible, as I understand it, for a person to lose their Roman citizenship. Jesus saying that, that he could be saying that. The second view, and the one that you get to fill your blank in on this, I, 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 I freely confess to you, I can't absolutely with all certainty say that that's what it means. It fits well with my uh, understanding of, of salvation and who all can be saved and that kind of stuff. But a number of the commentators that I read on this, uh, refer, when, when referring to the book of life, uh, say that, that, the, that the book of life is a record of all lives. Um, John Walvoord, his work in Revelation, Wearsby, Oliver Green, a number of them hold to this conviction. In other words, every person who has ever lived on the face of the earth, God knows them. He, he, he knows their name. That their name, in essence, is recorded in the book of life. As a person comes to an age and an understanding of whether they're going to, to follow God or not follow God, at death, if that person rejects God, their name is erased from the book of life. And at that point, and we'll see it in Revelation chapter 19, then that book is referred to and becomes the Lamb's book of life because only those who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb are left in the book. I like that interpretation, quite honestly, because it is my conviction that anybody can come into a relationship with Jesus. And I know not everybody holds to that view. But I'm of the belief that God desires to save anyone and everyone that would come to him. So, that's a lot dealing with that one particular aspect. But the bottom line is what we come back to. And what he says as he, as he finishes and closes every single letter. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, remember, think corporately, but think personally. Am I listening? Jesus, what are you saying to me? I'm saying... I'm saying, Clay, stop being so apathetic. Stop, stop being so comfortable in your Christianity. It's time to, to, to get back in the game, to be engaged in the work, and to not become, become slothful or fall asleep. Oh, you've got a reputation. That don't count diddly with me, Jesus says. Wake up. Wake up from your complacency. Shake off your apathy, whatever it takes in your life to, to say, you know what, stop, stop, enough, stop. Stop making excuses. Stop saying, well, this, or, or if only that, or once this happens, or, or if this, and it's, and it's like, stop. And put on your identity. Put on who you're created to be in Christ Jesus for his honor and for his glory. We've certainly seen application throughout each of the letters to the various churches, but there's probably no church that epitomizes the church in America today better than the church at Sardis. Jesus' plea was clear, wake up. 
A church can't rest on past accomplishments, neither can individual believers. We have to be moving forward in our walk with Christ and not resting on past victories. Everyone likes to be comfortable, but if we're not careful, comfort can become an obstacle to fulfilling our mission as a fully devoted follower of Jesus. We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sundays at 1030 at Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. And we welcome anyone looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross, and it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, joy, and hope. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. Culture Church, a new church for people like you. Learn more about us, who we are, what we're about, what we do, and what we believe. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. Now, this week's Cross Culture Q&A. Well, it's Q&A time here at Cross Culture Church. Each week, we take a question from you, uh, the family of God, about uh, a wide variety of subjects that, that, that we have dealt with even already. As we just started this first year, we've already dealt with all different kinds of, of subject matter, but uh, uh, Q&A cards are available out there. Remind you of those, and, uh, and, and so we're getting a, a nice supply of those coming in. And we're dealing with questions each week. Interesting question this week, um, and it looks like this, or this is the way I wrote it up. It was, originally came in a little different from this, but what does the Bible say about supernatural creation model versus an evolutionary creation model? Now, the question that the person posed had something to do with a, a classroom setting and where the teacher brought up evolution and they started this thing back and forth, but the crux of it is this. What does the Bible say about, about creation? Um, and, and how does that fit with evolution and, and that sort of thing? So uh, we're going to tackle that this morning, look at it for just a uh, hopefully a, a few moments, and I want to begin by uh, saying this to you. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So uh, as far as a direct answer to the question, what does the Bible say about it? Well, the Bible says that God created the heavens and the earth, and, and, and so it some point this, there is this faith factor, but as, uh, as you get into this, you understand that it's not just a blind faith where it has no empirical evidence or anything else like that. I do want to deal with a few things uh, in regards to it uh, this morning. A couple things I want to remind you of when, when you started this. Remember this. Number one, remember that there is a difference between a law or a fact of science and a theory. Always keep that in mind. When someone talks about a theory of science, what they mean is we believe this is something that happens. Now we're going, to, we're going to test this in the lab or in whatever environment it might be. And we're going to try and see if the results produce what we believe this theory is saying. So always remember that there is a difference between a, a law of science or an or a established fact of science and a theory of science. By the way, this is obviously, again, five minutes. Not going to be able to deal with this completely. And 
all that stuff, y'all, y'all understand. So uh, keep that in mind. There's a difference. Second, keep this in mind. Nowhere does the Bible conflict with any known law or fact of science. Nowhere in Scripture is there a conflict with a known law of science. Now that in itself, we could just stop right there and quit because that in itself is an absolutely amazing fact, ladies and gentlemen. Because you're talking about a book that is, is 2,000 to, to you know, 3,500 years old that speaks on numerous subjects. It doesn't claim to be a science book, but where it touches on areas of science or history or geography or anything else, it does so with absolute and complete accuracy. Why is that amazing? Well, take, uh, take somebody's science book from 30 years ago. And see if you could find something in there that didn't uh, match up with a known law of science. And you probably could find one. Nowhere does the Bible conflict the known law uh, or, or fact of science. Now, let me, uh, let me give you three explanations, or three, yeah, three explanations for, for how we got here. Here's what it is. There is, number one, supernatural creation. God created the universe. That's what Genesis 1-1 said. That's what I... Uh, happen, the view I happen to hold to, but that, that is one of the possibilities of how we got here. God uh, created the universe. The second um, proposed idea is very similar. It's a, it, it's, you can almost say two sides of the same coin, but I do want to make a distinction. There is what's known as intelligent design. An intelligent force created or designed the universe. Now, obviously, that, that would be very similar to supernatural creation. They, they would fit very well together. The only reason I make a distinction is because not everyone who holds to intelligent design necessarily believes in God. There are those that think that, well, maybe this is some kind of force or even aliens or, or something like that. Um, so not all uh, ideas, if you will, uh, hold to a God in that sense, but... Uh, but it fits very well with supernatural creation. And then the third option is the theory of evolution. And basically the universe created itself. Uh, I know that's cosmic evolution, but, but then as a result of all that, eventually uh, in the primordial ooze, you know, life happened and, and uh, some single cell, you know, something came out and, and it started the whole, whole thing. So that's, that's evolution. It's, it happened, it's by chance, and, and that occurred. Those are basically your options. The two kind of go, first two go together. Um, the third one, is diametrically opposed uh, to the first two. Let me give you some areas of difficulty for, for the evolutionary model. And, and I need to do that because if there's only really two options, e- either, either it's God, it's intelligent design, or it's random chance, then, then the best way to try and do this is show you just a couple things that cause some issues that, in the evolutionary model. One of them is this, um, the population of the earth. Now, this has been discussed for a long time, and, and I'm not saying evolutionists don't have, have answers to this. You can, you can listen to their answers and see whether you think it holds water. But there is a problem with the fact that if man has been an evolutionary process for 40 million years or whatever the time span is that man has supposedly been on the earth, that the population of the earth should actually be far greater than it is today. If, we, if, if this has been this process, it's been on, ongoing. So that's kind of a problem. My uh, chief uh, researcher, Travis, my son Travis, told me that it actually, in fact, if you, if you take the current population of the earth and the current uh, growth rate and you work backwards, that you end up at about 4,500 years, precisely about the same time that the flood would have occurred on the earth. So that's, that's, uh, that's interesting. So uh, the population of earth is kind of an issue. Uh, another one, stasis. Uh, now, stasis basically is the idea that, that, that there's not change in some of that. For instance, um, if, you, if you see a, if it ever gets warm again, and we see 
a uh, dragonfly. Um, we have found fossils that supposedly, according to certain scientific uh, ideas, are that dragonfly is tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of years old, and yet it looks exactly like a dragonfly still today. There's not been uh, a design change. There's not been an evolution, if you will. An alligator today looks like fossils of alligators found from, from uh, many years ago. So stasis is kind of an issue. If, if it's an evolutionary process, why do you have species that still look exactly the same? Um, and the third one, mathematical law of probability. Now, basically, here's what this says, is that, is that at some point, the odds of something happen, happening, if, if, that, if that odd, if that number becomes so large that the, the law of, uh, the mathematical law of probability says at some point it becomes an impossibility. It becomes a mathematical impossibility. It is, it is such a large number. In other words, the odds of something, in this case, evolutionary, random chance occurring that created me. The, the, the odds of that happening become an issue for the mathematical law of probability. And I just want to give you a couple of quotes on that this morning. Uh, one of them, or actually uh, both of them, I guess, are by a man named Sir Robert uh, Hoyle, who said this. He says, the overwhelming improbability, this was given in a, in a speech, a lecture he gave uh, at the Royal Institution in London or something like that. Um, he was, for years, the, uh, the head of the... Uh, astronomy department at Cambridge University, says the overwhelming improbability of getting the enzymes needed for even the simplest form of life to function by chance, that's evolution, the odds, he concluded, were about the same as throwing a sequence of 50,000 sixes with unbiased dice. In other words, with some dice and you roll a six, you roll a six and you roll a six 50,000 times in a row, he said that would probably be about the same uh, odds of that happening. You can decide for yourself whether you think that's a possibility or not. He went on to say this. The difference between an intelligent ordering, whether of words, fruit boxes, amino acids, or the Rubik Cube, and merely random shufflings can be fantastically large. Even as large as a number that would fill the whole volume of Shakespeare's plays with its zeros. So... If one proceeds directly and straightforwardly in this matter without being deflected by a fear of incurring the wrath of scientific opinion, one arrives at the conclusion that biomaterials with their amazing measure of order must be the outcome of intelligent design. No other possibility I have been able to think of in pondering this issue over quite a long time seems to me to have anything like as high a possibility of being true. That's the... That's the mathematical probability thing. Hoyle says it just, it's just impossible uh, for it to happen like that. All right, let's see. What else did I want to say? Um, I know I had something else that I'm bringing up. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, I just throw this in there. That was from um, uh, Charles Darwin in, uh, in Origin. He says, to suppose that the eye, with all its inimitable contrivances for adjusting the focus to different distances, for admitting different uh, amounts of light, and for the correction of spherical and chromatic aberrations could have been formed by natural selections, seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree. Darwin himself said that. Now, it didn't stop him from going on and, and proposing that, but even Darwin himself said, I under, he said, I admit, this looks absolutely absurd to even say that. Of course, we know far more about the eye today uh, than we did there. Okay, I know that's a lot. Let me give you two quickly more. You're, you're spellbound, I can tell. Two more, <laughs> two more problems. 
with, uh, with evolution that, ha- that, that should be dealt with. Uh, one of them is this, second law of thermodynamics. I mentioned this to Greg Bass Jr. the other day in the gym. We were in the gym, and he said, I hadn't been in the gym in a, in a while. And he said, I can tell I'm a little weaker. I said, you know why that, what, why that is? I said, that's because of the second law of thermodynamics. He looked at me like, okay. Uh, second law of thermodynamics, or the law of entropy, uh, basically says that everything is in a constant state of breaking down. Anybody that's lived past the age of 25 knows that that's true. Everything is in a constant state of breaking down. Cars rust, trees eventually grow old and, and die, and you know, your bodies, everything. That's the law, second law of thermodynamics. It's a law of science. The Bible explains it and calls it the sin curse, but um, it is a reality. Evolution seems to contradict that, which says that we're in this, in this process of progression. That seems to be a problem with second law of thermodynamics. And then the final uh, problem, the law of abiogenesis. I'm not even sure if I spelt that correctly or not, but, but it's basically is the idea that, that life cannot come from non-life. That's an established fact. As I life cannot come from non-life. So you're left with deciding how life got started in the first place. Um, real quickly, because I'm just uh, way over my time, <laughs> I don't know what made you think I can do this kind of stuff in five minutes. But we're having a good time. Uh, let me give you, because here's, here's one other thing think about sin. Because everybody says, hey, everybody, all scientists agree that, that evolution is, is an established fact. That we don't need a God. It can, everybody, that's an established fact. I want you to just see a few quotes that let you know that not every scientist agrees with that. Matter of fact, some of the greatest scientists in the world were creationists. Uh, Sir Isaac Newton, some of you guys heard of that guy. Uh, Isaac Newton said this, the most beautiful system of the sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. Here's another one. Um, When I study the book of nature, I find myself oftentimes reduced to exclaim with the psalmist, how manifold are thy works, O Lord, in wisdom hast thou made them all. Robert Boyle, the father of modern uh, chemistry. Here's another one. Yet even in earthly matters, I believe that the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. Michael Faraday, father of electromagnetism. And then one final one from an evolutionist, uh, Francis Crick. uh, Biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see was not designed, but rather evolved. Now, do you hear what he's saying? Now, I realize I'm taking one snippet, and, you know, and, and we need to know the context, but do you understand what he's saying? He said that the science has to constantly remind us, it, it looks created. I know it looks like somebody designed this thing, but it wasn't. It's, I know it's not created. We, it evolved. And, and, and we have to constantly keep that in mind. So not, not all scientists uh, universally uh, believe in evolution. Here's the bottom line. Uh, Romans chapter 1 says this, From the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen being understood through what, has, what he has made. You can see it. You can, it's, it's obvious. It's plain. It's what Paul is saying. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became nonsense and their senseless minds were dark and claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and four-footed animals and reptiles. And therefore, God delivered them over in the cravings of their heart to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged, here it is, the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served something created instead of the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. 
whether it's in a science class, a college lecture, a conversation at the water cooler, or whatever it is. Um, it's important that, that believers know what they believe and why they believe it without just a standard, well, I just believe it, and that's why. That drives, actually, intelligent people crazy. Give them some reasons. There are actual valid reasons for believing that a supernatural creation model is, is actually a much more valid uh, model than the evolutionary model. That's Q&A.